Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, Amazon battles left-wing city officials in Seattle over a tax plan that's a textbook example of a union scam at the local level. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Seattle, Washington, one of America's most left-wing cities, has a severe homelessness problem. And in keeping with its staunchly statist leanings, the city has decided to try to fix the problem by raising taxes and spending more. The tax the city council is considering was proposed by a commission that included representatives of left-wing activist groups and two local labor unions. Their proposal would tax employment itself at a rate of 26 cents per hour of employee work at companies above a certain size. One of those companies, online retailer Amazon. This so-called head tax has led Amazon to suspend plans to expand its offices in the city and provoke demonstrations by building trades union members against city officials who are pushing the policy. But Seattle's tax battle is just one of a series of local efforts designed by representatives of big labor that increase taxes, threaten jobs, and make America a more difficult place to do business. Uh, so, Seattle, let's start with that. What is going on in the rainiest big city in America? <laughs> um, you have... The, the homelessness in Seattle is actually a major problem. Uh, according to their canvas, uh, a lot of major cities do this, a uh, canvas of the, the street people. Uh, and according to their most recent canvas... The population of people living on the street was up by 44 percent from 25 from 2015, uh, substantial increase. Um, the rents, as they are in a in a number of major cities, Washington D.C. I know intimately, uh, but also New York, San Francisco, their rents have have surged as the tech industry and the uh, in Washington D.C., it's the parastatal industry. All the all the uh, businesses that make their money by lobbying or getting contracts from the government um, brings in a lot of uh, of tech type employment, a lot of liquid money, and because of uh, building regulations, the amount of construction of new housing and the number of people coming in who want the existing housing, more demand, not as much new supply, price goes up. Combine that with an ongoing national opioid crisis, street people. And yep. So some of the local unions, however, have a solution for this, I take it. Well, the unions not only have a solution to Seattle's homelessness problem, they have a one-size-fits-all solution to every problem they can think of. And that is this tax on hours of employment at companies above a certain size, the so-called head tax. Gee, I seem to remember there's an economic law that says if you tax something, you get less of it. So if we were that taxing— is, That is the general application of the law in supply and demand, yes. If, if we were taxing uh, people's work hours, we might have less of them so people would work we'll get, less. We'll get to how that might—we'll get to that very shortly. But uh, what the unions wanted, or the unions originally wanted, especially SEIU 775NW, uh, the major public employee union— which we have a, I believe we have a profile of that on Influence Watch. 
um, has been in a big battle with the conservative free market Freedom Foundation over the rights of the un- the employees compelled by state law to receive monopoly bargaining representation from the union who do not wish to be union members uh, that we have written about at capitalresearch.org. And they proposed one of these head taxes in order to fund the city labor regulator. A lot of these left-wing cities, San Francisco has one, uh, Seattle has one, have their own essentially equivalent of the State Department of Labor or the Federal Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division, which enforces all the rules that say that you have to pay the minimum wage, you have to pay, you have to uh, apply overtime, you have to do all that. Uh, so the unions, and and in what should surprise no one in a extremely left-wing city when you're talking about labor, uh, uh, labor law enforcement, uh, these offices tend to be extremely favorable to unions. So the idea that the unions would want to funnel money into them, not surprising. Yes. Well, given that the unions also funnel, funnel so much money into the campaigns of the local legislators— uh, that's probably is not surprising. Well, and one of the things you get when you funnel money, funnel money, and perhaps even more importantly, in-kind contributions, organizing, endorsements, advocacy, especially in either ostensibly nominally nonpartisan elections or in party primaries that prove to be decisive, where you can't just you know most people go into the polling station and they pull the lever for one of the major parties. I know I am a Republican, or I know I am a Democrat. And, or I'm an independent and I'm mad at this party, so I'm going to vote for the other one. And the information that they receive is the party label. In a decisive primary, like voting for, let's say, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who's essentially guaranteed to be a Democrat, so the Democratic par- primary decides the election, you have to do a lot of research if you actually want to come to an informed choice. Most people don't do that. So the union coming out and signaling, you know, candidate so-and-so is the candidate of the working families endorsed by Service Employees International Union Local 775, that's a pretty big get. That's a big signal to left-wing people who like the labor unions, who like higher minimum wages, like all these regulations, that they should check the box for that person. If the Municipal Chamber of Commerce says that Actually, no, candidate so-and-so is the, uh, is the candidate that you should vote for. Then people who are maybe small business owners who may otherwise be, otherwise be liberal, uh, people who are uh, you know, maybe higher income, uh, worried about taxes getting too high, might support the Municipal Chamber of Commerce candidate. So one of the things that you get as the labor unions for having supported all these city councilors is when the city council forms its task force to determine what tax they're going to raise to pay for all this uh, homeless services, you get seats on the council. Uh, So in 2017, the city convened the Seattle Progressive Revenue Tax Force. Task Force. Tax Force. Little Freudian. Freudian. Uh, Seattle Progressive Revenue Task Force. Uh, and, and that progressive is the capital P. It's the progressive as in left wing. Uh, among, your, among the members, there was a, uh, an official with the Progress Alliance of Washington, one of those liberal organizing groups that 
uh, again, the most famous of which was Acorn that when it died, sprouted up a bunch of, a bunch of other ones. Uh, the Service Employees International Union 1199 Labor Union, the UFCW Grocery Store Workers Union, uh, yeah. and United, then, United, the UFCW United uh, United Food and Commercial United Food and Commercial Workers, yes, which the, is essentially the, the grocery workers the grocery union. workers union in uh, in in heavily unionized states. So, like Washington D.C., the Safeway that is two blocks from our office is UFCW unionized. Um, and then you have uh, the left wing homeless advocacy newspaper and the Transit Writers Union, which is another one of those left wing organizing groups. Uh, it should surprise no one that they came back with this head tax proposal that the unions had wanted to do for other reasons for a long time. Now, what did some of the other players in the union world, like the AFL-CIO, what was their response? So the Martin Luther King County AFL-CIO, which is the local, the, the way the AFL-CIO as an advocacy organization rather than as a trade union is structured, uh, there's the national AFL-CIO, there are the state councils of the AFL-CIO, or state or regional councils. And then there are the local labor councils. And if you're a local labor union, let's say you're UFCW 400, which is the union that organizes the Safeway two blocks from our office. Uh, the UFCW is a member union of the AFL-CIO. The local union is a member of the local labor council and the D.C., Maryland, Northern Virginia state AFL-CIO. So the local AFL-CIO Labor Council for Seattle endorsed the tax. Not all the unions in the Labor Council did. Uh, because Amazon, quite predictably, since this is aimed directly at them, retaliated by saying, that new building we were going to build, yeah, we're not going to build it. Uh, the the guys who would have otherwise built the building, the building trades guys, the iron workers union, when one of the city councilors who's pushing the idea came to demonstrate in front of Amazon that, you know, look at how awful Amazon is, uh, the iron workers union actually demonstrated against her. This is not actually as unusual as you would think. The While the building trades unions lean pretty substantially to the left, they are not as far left as the government employees union, the, the hospital workers unions, the grocery workers unions, the communication workers unions. Uh, another kind of classic example of this, uh, when cities on the left, New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, San Francisco, have tried to tax soft drinks, the Teamsters Union who organize the distributors, the drive, the, you know, all the trucks that say Pepsi on them and, and all the trucks that say Coke on them, uh, the Teamsters Union tends to be the face of the opposition because if you are Coca-Cola or Pepsi, would you rather have, you know, working men, the truck drivers who are going to be hurt by the, who are going to be hurt by the tax, or would you rather have big, big mega conglomerate corp yep. uh, as the, as the face, especially in a left, left-leaning place where uh, a, the, so, the supposed working class is going to be more, uh, more respected than, again, big mega conglomerate from out of town. Well, and uh, the same sort of thing happens as well on the left when, with an issue like the, the, pipe, the oil and gas pipelines. 
Uh, the left-wing enviros, of course, are wildly opposed to any generation of electricity. Uh, certainly, if it's going to be less expensive, they're opposed to it. Any, 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 gen any generation of electricity by ways that we currently know how to generate electricity that are reliable and effective. <laughs> yes, sorry. A, a, a fine clarification. <laughs> but the... Uh, uh, but the tens of thousands of union jobs that would be involved in building and maintaining those pipelines, um, they don't always take exactly the same sort of view, which no, is the, why there have been repeated the, efforts yeah, over the years to try to force the, the Greens the labor, and the, the laborers union, union, the Laborers International Union of North America uh, quit the Blue-Green Alliance, which is the entity that convenes the labor unions and the environmentalists to advocate liberalism. Uh, you know, together and jointly, and we're going to be good environmentalists and good trades unionists. Uh, the laborers' union quit because it was laborers' union jobs that were going to be hurt if, uh, specifically, the Keystone Pipeline through the central United States from Canada, uh, which had been sort of the totemic fight for the environmentalists during the late Obama administration, and then when the new administration came in in 2017, it was authorized. Yes. Uh, the, well, now, to get back to Seattle and the fight there, uh, what about the mayor? Where does he stand in all this? Uh, she. Uh, Sorry. The, the, the mayor is the Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the mayor, as of our recording of this, has expressed some skepticism of the tax and wants, and citing the opposition from the building trades union and the opposition from... The Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, which is of which Amazon is a member, that she wants the negotiators to go back to the table. She wants she wants not to not raise taxes, but to find the revenues in some other way that isn't going to provoke Amazon acting in the way that the law of supply and demand effectively compels them to, which is to say. That expansion we were going to do in Seattle, we're not going to do it here. Uh, so she has expressed ex expressed some skepticism, again, as of the time of this recording, uh, and wants business interests at the table when whatever they decide they're going to do, they do. Yes, this, I, I, since we're just outside Washington, D.C., I have to remember the, uh, the famous left-wing mayor of Washington for many years, Marion Barry, uh, similarly had lots of friendships with developers, uh, yes. uh, business developers in the city. The, the, it, it, it's, again, it's again kind of, kind of unusual because otherwise Barry was extremely left-wing, but when it, came to, when it came to development, when it came to uh, trying to stimulate business, and again, you could say it's more state capitalist business than free market business, uh, but yeah, no, Barry was actually relatively, relatively lenient in his dealings with business compared to some of the alternatives from Washington, D.C. Yeah. in the 80s. Now, this, this uh, brouhaha in Seattle, this is not exactly the first time that we've seen something like this, is it? Not at all. The idea that the local labor unions would have a hand in drawing up the labor regulations that then are Im imposed by the state or imposed by the city, uh, this is effectively now standard operating procedure. Yeah, we should point out that for the left in general, uh, going straight for the money and straight for the sources of power is pretty SOP. Right. And, and I'll also point out that when center-right interests, when pro-business interests, when pro-free market interests are uh, 
interacting with legislators, proposing model policies, uh, it is somehow a great scandal. When left-wing interests do it, when the labor unions do it, even to a greater and more involved degree, you know, that's not front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. That's not front page of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. That's not front page of the Washington Post. That's not front page of the New York Times. Uh, when conservatives and free market interests take that playbook and say, well, it works, for the, it works for the labor unions, let's do that, then it's front page of the New York Times. Then it's front page of the Post-Intelligencer. Then it's front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. Yep. Well, uh, speaking of San Francisco, they are one of the places that have had a similar uh, sort of uh, phenomenon, aren't they? Yes. Uh, full disclosure, I worked f on a, at a, as, as pursuant to my employment with a former employer, uh, I worked on a contract for a free market think tank that investigated this. Uh, so San Francisco enacted what, is, what the unions call a predictive, a fair scheduling law or a predictable scheduling law, which basically takes away the ability of shift managers to manage their shifts, manage uh, employee, uh, employee time management as far as assigning hours and to whom hours should be assigned and even who should be who should be hired, whether new people should be hired or whether uh, part-time workers should be promoted to full-time. Uh, now, in San Francisco, one of the labor union front groups uh, called Jobs with Justice was just, I'm sure coincidentally, I'm sure, <laughs> was run by the brother of one of the city councilors. And again, I'm sure coincidentally, the Jobs with Justice people call him Brother A, went to Brother B, went to Counselor Brother B, and basically presented, this is what we're going to, you know, a, a policy matrix, this is what we're going to do this year. And it evolved into this, uh, into this predictable scheduling ordinance. Uh, with but you say it's just a coincidence, but I think there actually emails came out, did they not, uh, about yes, some of this? Yes, the, the free market think tank uh, Employment Policies Institute acquired a bunch of these emails through an open records request, and they show that officials with the city AFL-CIO Labor Council, uh, which we which we discussed earlier, the Jobs with Justice and the city and the city councilor's office, as well as the uh, the city labor enforce the city labor standards enforcement office, and a national labor union-funded, labor union-associated litigation support group, the National Employment Law, not National Employment Law Project, which we have a, a full profile up on Influence Watch about them, were all intimately involved in writing it. Uh, and, in fact, one of the emails to a different counselor, Brother, 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 B of jobs with, brother A of Jobs with Justice, uh, let... The let another city councilor who had been working more in alignment with the still liberal city business interests on on a bill in a similar in a similar vein that the AFL that the local labor council was not was not involved. It was just the just so happened that the vice president of the local labor council had been intimately involved in dra in the uh, devising and drafting the legislation. Ah. 
Shocking. Well, uh, did uh, the People's Republic of San Francisco pass the law despite all this collusion? Of course they did. Uh, it's the People's Republic of San Francisco. And why, now again, you might think that this is just confined to the People's Republic of San Francisco or confined to the People's Republic of California. No. The, these are supposed to be model policies. Again, when conservatives have model legislation, it's a great scandal. When liberals have model legislation, it's, you know, policy evolution. Laboratories of democracy. But yes, this model policy in San Francisco then gets brought out of San Francisco, goes to San Jose, goes to Seattle, goes to New York City, Washington, D.C. in a modified form, and the state of Oregon. Uh, and it probably has or will be proposed in wherever, they, wherever the, uh, the labor unions and the left can get a toehold and, and advance it. This is... This is a model for future, uh, future legislation, for future regulation. So, well, and speaking of people's republics, uh, even in the great state of Texas, in the People's Republic of Austin, there is a somewhat similar sort of scheme being hatched, is there not? Right. The, in Austin, the issue is paid sick leave. Uh, the uh, the unions for a long time, because union contracts generally have a provision that allow that requires the employer to offer a certain number of paid days off, uh, whereas some you know lower lower wage casual labor tends maybe not to have that. Want these provisions to be mandated by law? So, in Austin, labor unions, uh, most prominently the SCIU here. Uh, pushed heavily for a law requiring employers to offer offer paid leave, and I believe, you know, if you, if you want to again think about this being not just something that happens in people's republics, uh, I am pretty sure there is a federal law. That the, the Democrats have introduced a federal bill uh, to require employers to offer paid sick leave. Um, in Austin, uh, earlier this year, the bill was rushed through city council a month after it was introduced. Again, because all the organizing by the left and by the council and by the labor unions has all been done behind closed doors beforehand, there's no way to then scramble oppos- you know, to scramble opposition to enforce, especially when, you know, the issue with, you know, minimum wage hikes, with paid sick leave, with predictable scheduling, it's the classical problem where you're taking money from some people and giving it to other people, and it sounds really, really good in theory, and then in practice, there are problems. And the problems, most people, don't, you know, they, they don't think about it when the pollster calls them up and says, you know, would you like there to be a paid sick leave law? Uh, the, the fact, you know, the, the, the fact is when you increase the regulation on employers, when you increase the amount of money that they must pay, one of two things happens. Either prices go up, so you end up with an inflation tax, or employment is cut, either by hours, either by hours not being offered, either by jobs themselves having to be cut, uh, or by employer prospective employers not opening new businesses. Yes. So the very people who supposedly are going to be helped are supposedly uh, going to be helped oftentimes are hurt. And in fact, in Seattle, they did a study of minimum wage 
which was again a scandal unto the, the how how they reacted to that study was a scandal unto itself for another time. Uh, but it found that a a substantial hike in the minimum wage had actually reduced low wage employees' pay by over a hundred dollars a month. Yes, quite quite a victory. Well, uh, that's the left wing side you've given us fighting in Austin, Texas. But there's been a response. Uh, has it not from the business side? Right. Uh, because Texas is a relatively pro-business state, the, what the business community has tried is, is trying to do, they've filed a lawsuit claiming that the state, Texas has what's called a preemption law, which is that Texas, the state government decides what the minimum wage for the entire state will be. They've chosen the federal minimum. The... Business community is arguing that by requiring paid sick leave, they they are violating that preemption law. Additionally, if they again if they lose the case, they could try to go to the legislature and have the preemption law itself amended to say that the state of Texas will decide what paid leave requirement, if any, shall be shall be imposed throughout the state. And also involved in this fight, I believe, is another state-level think tank. You mentioned in the Seattle case, you mentioned our friends at the Freedom Foundation, which is the Washington State think tank. And then yes, uh, in, in, Texas, in Texas, it's the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Yep. So they, they too, uh, are uh, trying to respond to the, the Austin proposal. Yes. Uh, but... Um, I, I want to to backtrack to the Washington State folks. The Freedom Foundation is wonderful because they have uh, been literally going door to door with members of the SEIU, the single largest political donor of the last few decades in American politics, uh, and going to the uh, the members of the union and letting them know how they can leave because, of course, many many members of the SEIU never. Asked to join, never right, wanted never, to never join. Asked to join, never wanted to join, and uh, recent recent legal decisions have given employee employees, and I use employees extremely advisedly in this case when we're talking about home health care aides. Again, this 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 uh, this dues skim uh, is you, you could do a whole episode on on the dues skim and how sleazy it is. Uh, the you know, recent court decisions have enabled these people much more easily to, you still can't opt out of, un, out of union representation, out of the union contract, because the union demands that you not be allowed to, be, to opt out of the union contract. That is a favor given to the unions by the state. You still have to be represented by the unions, but these court decisions have said that if you dissent from the union, you no longer have to pay to be malrepresented by the union. Yep. Uh, well, speaking of, uh, of the slimy side of some of these scams, with many of these union and left uh, pushed policies like the paid sick leave, like the, the, the uh, high minimum wages and the rest, there, I think maybe the slimiest aspect of all of that is the little tiny loophole that somehow tends to get slipped in at the last second into those laws. So can you tell our viewers a bit about that? In a number of cases involving these local labor regulations, the San Francisco uh, scheduling law was one. 
uh, a number of local minimum wage laws, so-called living wage laws, which are uh, basically super minimum wages for uh, industries that just so happen to be targets for unionization. Hotels are, hotels are a common one. Uh, there's, a, there's a little provision that says that if you have a collectively bargained contract, translation, if you are unionized, then it doesn't apply. And why would that be? Well, the unions want to collude with the employers in what's called a neutrality agreement. Uh, the unions go to the employers and say, you don't, you know, we are going to try to organize your, your, your workers. If you, you know, we, we demand that you recognize our public card our public card check. If you sign a if you sign a card, you're, if if you ever sign a union if a worker card, signs if a, yes, a card, yes, if an employee mm-hmm. signs signs a union card, they are not petitioning for an election. They are offering to join the union. Now, needless to say, this is not something that union uh, that union organizers are generally very forthcoming about. But if you read the fine print, the worker is signing up to join the union. So. The union gets a majority of the cards, comes to the employer and says, we demand, we're the union now. In a neutrality agreement, the employer says that that is sufficient. The employer will not say, actually, no, I think those people didn't actually think they were joining the union. I think they were petitioning for an election. I don't recognize, the, I, I don't recognize those cards. I demand an, a secret ballot election supervised by the government. And one of the ways you get an employer to concede to a neutrality agreement, to concede to the card check, because the card check is easier, is by offering them a sweetheart's, a sweetheart situation like, like this. Yeah, so just, just to review, uh, union goes to a city council, gets them to pass some incredibly onerous burden upon businesses that will in fact hurt the lowest people on the employment ladder. Uh, with the, the minimum wage, uh, high minimum wage, or or high amount of sick paid or, sick or leave, tight, and the rest. Or, or or tight regulation that makes it extremely. I mean, in high in uh, in college summers, I worked in a re- I worked in a restaurant, watching the shift managers try desperately to keep. And th- and this was two thousand eight two thousand nine. So kind of the trough of the economic, of the economic cycle. Watching the shift managers who wanted to be fair, you know, who wanted to be fair to the employees, their friends, uh, but also. They had to keep the business on. You know, they had to keep the business open. They trying to keep the amount of money they were spending on labor within the reasonable limits that had that were set by their bosses. I mean, they had, they had a hard go. Yes. So so they the union comes in. They uh, they get a law passed that is incredibly burdensome to business, hurts workers at the bottom of the totem pole, um, and then they turn around and say to the businesses, "Hey, this." Uh, law that's making your life miserable and that's causing you to have to lay people off and the rest, we will give you an out if you help us force your workers into the union, then you won't have to pay that high minimum wage or otherwise con- right. you uh, can th- then you theory, you could theor- theoretically avoid avoid these uh, some of these regulations if you collectively bargain. Yeah. Now it seems to me that 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 that, that is, perfect way for us to talk about the truly big picture here, which is that unions 
for decades have seen their numbers erode and erode and erode because they, in fact, are not offering anything that people voluntarily wish they're to receive. They're they're consistently eroding. They've been consistently eroding since the you know since the 1940s. The uh, they're not offering. You know, again, they don't really offer a product that mo- that most workers that most employees are looking for. The some of the great failures of American business unions were there. Pan Am, Eastern Airlines, the bankruptcies of the, even though they were salvaged by, you know, bailed out by the government, the uh, the bankruptcies in of the Detroit Big Three automakers, you know, uh, Hostess, was, which is a unionized company, has been in and out of bankruptcy several times. When... When the kind of the face of unionized business is in bankruptcy court, even if you're not a you know even if you're uh, an employee, not a shareholder, you know that your your health and the health of the business are interrelated. Your health and the health of the business are are tied. And even if you don't like your boss, even if you think he's a jerk, even if you think you deserve more money, going all the way is not necessarily what you want to do. Yes, and even some uh, folks on the left friendly to labor will occasionally these days write about how, man, if unions are going to make a comeback, uh, they're going to have to be a lot better bargains for their would-be customers. Well, right. I mean, you've had, and there are some even union, union officials who have said that they need to get they need to get leaner, they need to be better at bargaining, they need to be... Uh, you know, less of the political, less of the political program, less of the, uh, less of the fat, the simple, the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the UAW's infamous golf course, which is the worst bet that a, <laughs> that a union has ever made on any single financial, uh, financial venture. teachers <laughs> unions failing charter schools. Yes. Same, um, same principle. But, and yet, despite all these troubles with unions, uh, despite the increasingly desperate and slimy tactics that they have to use to try to force Americans uh, into themselves, just this week there's a bit of labor news that's surprising, perhaps, in that context. Uh, it actually it isn't surprising at all. Uh, the uh, the uh, Bernie Sanders, former presidential candidate, U.S. Senator from Vermont, uh, backed by a number of Democratic senators, some of whom are reputed to have national reputed to have future ambitions for higher office, uh, introduced a, a bill which would basically make it considerably easier for unions to do that, to force uh, American employees to join unions and to pay union dues, whether they want union monopoly representation or not. The, uh, the bill would make that public organizing card check mandatory. There would be no... Functionally, there would remain the possibility of a secret ballot, but in practice, it would never be it would never be used because simply having the monopoly of cards. Again, if you ever sign a union card, you are signing up to join the union. It is not a petition for election. The a majority of union cards would be treated as public votes for the union. They would be really you are signing up to join the union. There is no election. Uh, that has been the single policy goal of big labor for at least the past decade and a half. In 2008-9, the, uh, in 2009, the Obama administration and Democrats in the House of Representatives passed the 
in Washington, D.C., we tend to name uh, bills in an Orwellian fashion. So it was called the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, the That made it out of the House. It died to a bipartisan filibuster in the Senate. The uh, And that would have instituted the Institute of the Card Check, ended the secret ballot. Uh, in addition, this new proposal, this new Sanders proposal, goes even further. Because currently, if you are fortunate enough to live in one of 28 states, including Virginia, but not including Washington, D.C., uh, you have what's called a right-to-work right to work law. A majority of your, of your colleagues have decided that they wish to unionize or their you know, long-dead colleagues many, many years in the past because unions exist forever once they're established, decided they wanted to be unionized. So you are union monopoly represented, but you feel you are being malrepresented. You feel that the union stands for things you don't believe in, like if you, you know if you're an AFSCME member in the public in the public sector, you know four hundred thousand dollars to Planned Parenthood's five hundred one c four group, and you do not wish to support to support that. You believe you are being mal, you believe you are being badly represented. Uh, if you live in those 28 states, you do not have to fund that malrepresentation unless this bill passes, in which case all those right-to-work laws are going to be, va- are gonna be va- uh, taken away, are going to go away. Uh, which is just stunning that, that they even would dream of such it, a thing. It's, but again, it's been since the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is the federal law that amended the National Labor Relations Act, which you can go read about on Influence Watch, uh, and amended it to make it more favorable to employees and not just labor unions. Since the passage of that act, which allowed states the option of enacting a right-to-work law, it has been one of unions' number one, repealing it has been one of unions' number one yeah. legislative priorities. I have, I have an idea. Maybe the states that have right-to-work laws that want to keep them can call themselves sanctuary states. <laughs> Uh, well, there's, as I recall, the uh, the Sanders uh, union bill that's out has yet another uh, aspect to it, which is uh, changing the way independent contractors are handled. So if, especially with the rise of services like Uber, uh, where you have workers who are working with their own capital, it's their own car, who are oftentimes, you know, in Washington, D.C., I see enough uh, hire vehicles that have the Uber and the Lyft stickers in the back, uh, who may be working for both sides of a comp- of a competitive uh, of a competitive market. Uh, they are classified for legal purposes as independent contractors. They are as, so they're not considered. They're, they're not considered. If if you're the Uber slash Lyft driver with Uber slash Lyft stickers in the back who takes rides from both services, you are not an employee of either. Uh, you are you are an independent contractor. You are an independent businessman in your own. Legally, you are an independent businessman who contracts with these services to essentially as brokerages, like like if you had a four hundred one k and it's through a through a stock brokerage. Uh, the Sanders bill would say no, 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 no. You're an employee, and California's judici- the judicial activists on the California Supreme Court have already said that in the state of California, no, 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 you're an employee. This is a big union favor. Why? Because you can unionize employees. You cannot unionize independent contractors. They're independent businessmen. And so even though 
you know, if you're the the Uber driver who pulls do- who pulls double with Lyft and with other ride sharing services, you would be an employee of two competitive two competing companies at the same time. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, logic is not the left's strong point. Uh, coercion is. Uh, and that right. no, and, and this is that, and this, and and that uh, that is actually a point that needs to be that needs to be made. What the Sanders bill shows is that for labor unions to remain competitive as a vehicle for uh, employee representation, they feel that the only way they can do that is with a level of compulsion that in 2008 they thought went too far. <laughs> yes, and of course the fact that there are. Uh, politicians willing to do their bidding like this perhaps has something to do with the fact that, again, to take my favorite uh, political giving statistic from the 1990s, 1990 uh, political cycle all the way to the 2016 one, if you look at the largest organizational donors to politicians, seven of the top ten are labor unions. And that's, I think that's where one where one could end. That that's, that in order, the the American employee does not wish to be coer- you know does not wish to be coerced into a union. There's fairly substantial uh, public opinion research that right to that right to work laws are fairly popular. That ref- even some reforms that would uh, at the na- that would at the national level uh, liberalize employee relations with their unions are also are also quite popular. Uh, and again, when the card check bill was proposed in 2010, it went down to a bipartisan filibuster. Uh, and then the unions went after one of the filibusters, Democrat uh, of Arkansas, Blanche Lincoln, in the Democratic primary, and they failed to beat her. She, yeah. she was renominated. Now, she lost the general election because it was 2010 and it was a big Republican year. But she survived, you know, Democrats in Arkansas voting essentially on the card check bill as a one-issue primary said, no, it goes too far. And now they want to go even further than that. Yep. No, it's uh, r- truly shocking and a sign of desperation. Well, that's our show for this week. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. You can catch it on Facebook Live or YouTube and find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.